0: Welcome to Theory Lab, everybody. This is the American Cancer Society's research podcast. I'm Joe Cotter, here with Dr. Susanna Greer. Hey, Susanna. Hey, Joe. So you're going to hear about one of the American Cancer Society's signature research products, the Cancer Prevention Study 3, or CPS3. And you're going to hear about the addition of a COVID-19 symptom tracker app to that study. So for this discussion, we spoke with the principal investigator of CPS3, our colleague, Dr. Alpa Patel. She's our senior scientific director of epidemiology research here at ACS. What an amazing research study she's heading up, Susanna, and what an important addition to it. Yeah, this this was so much fun. I I'm not gonna ruin it for you all. <laughs> we'll tell you the whole story, but I will say that Alpha did a really great job of setting the stage for us of what this cancer prevention study three is all about, I mean, launched in 2006 and assembled over 300,000 participants. How these participants have really given so much time and energy to continue to participate in this study, what the goals are. And then I love what Alpa shared with us, which I guess I can just sum up with she and her colleagues have just asked lots of questions about wouldn't it be possible if or couldn't we do X They have been so incredibly innovative with thinking about new ways to engage participants to collaborate with researchers outside of the United States and so we're going to hear a lot about that and. One of the most exciting things we're gonna hear about is how we have collaborated with other researchers to allow CPS 3 participants to help investigators track the COVID-19 pandemic. And so what a wonderful thing to, while we are apart together, be able to do something not only to help ourselves, but to really help everyone who's currently on this planet to understand more about this disease and then eventually to understand how COVID is impacting our risk for cancer and cancer patients themselves. Um, So I think you're gonna love it. This left me with so much hope and just feeling invigorated and excited. So I hope you feel the same. Good morning, Appa, how are you?
1: Good morning, Suzanne, I'm doing well. How about you?
0: I am better than I deserve.
1: And I'm honestly super Excited to have the
0: opportunity to talk to you today. This is going to be a lot of fun. Let's let's level set a little bit. You and I are going to talk about the American Cancer Society Prevention Study Three, which we all call CPS Three. That's our our lingo. Um, can you tell us tell us a little bit about this study? Maybe share the goals.
1: Yes. Yeah, so we started these studies. I, I always feel like I need to give a very quick thirty second history. Uh, As its name entails, it's the third-generation study, and these studies have really been an anchor of our research program since the 1950s. But this third-generation study launched back in 2006, and we put one in place roughly every generation. And we assemble a large group of people, in this case 300,000 people across the country are participating. And they're individuals that have no history of cancer when they sign up to be in the study. And by signing up, they give us a ton of information about their lifestyle, their medical and family history, and they even give us a blood sample that we bank. And we then follow them for decades. And we learn about who develops cancer, other diseases, and then using all of the information that they provide, we look at what is associated with higher or lower risk of developing cancer. So it really is a, a study at the population level that helps us understand the basis of cancer prevention and control.
0: Wow, that's it's so impressive that over 300,000 people would be willing to really join us on this journey, right? Because they are going to not only give you information at the beginning of the study, but maybe tell us a little bit about what happens along the way. Are they able to update their information? Um, you know, how do they continue to participate?
1: Our participants are simply remarkable. I mean, the research that I do wouldn't be possible without their commitment long term. So not only do they provide all of this information when they first enroll, but um, as part of that, they commit to uh, periodically updating that information. So right now, that means that at minimum, every three years, they're getting a survey that they can do online or on paper and they can update all of that information that may have changed. And they're doing a lot of other really interesting things in terms of helping us understand how cancer develops. So one example is that if an individual is diagnosed with cancer, they actually are then asked for permission for us to collect their tumor tissue. And it's been, again, just remarkable to see the commitment of these individuals across the country in saying, yes, you may have some of my tumor tissue. What else do you need from me to be able to help understand um, why this cancer may have occurred so that we can potentially prevent someone else in the future from getting it? Maybe if you could just give us, I have
0: two other questions um, around just kind of CPS3 in general. Do you have just a bullet of what makes this such a valuable resource, not only for the American Cancer Society, but for all of the individuals we interact with.
1: It's valuable for a number of reasons, but I think the the thing that sticks out most to me is the fact that it is one of the newest and and first of what we're calling our modern-day population studies. So there's so much new in our environment and the way in which we live. There's so much new in terms of what we can do with a blood sample in terms of understanding what happens inside your body. And older population studies like CPS1 and CPS2, they're not going to help us understand the cancer landscape today and looking forward as much. So we really need to have new studies like this that will help us as we move forward.
0: You know, I think what you said is really something I'd like to impress upon. And that is that as scientists, we do the best we can with the tools we have at that moment. But those tools are always changing. And you're right, by sharing not only survey data, but biological samples, we will be able to do things with those samples in the future that we can't even do today. So it it, it really has an incredible impact. And, and it's quite the resource that is so valued. Just one other follow-up question. You mentioned that study participants are able to share these periodic updates. On the low end would be a survey every three years, which is still a heavy lift. And on the high end would be if things change, and you mentioned if there's a cancer diagnosis. So you mentioned how participants share, but what happens on on your end? Are you able to see results in real time? And then one step beyond that, when will these results, or how will these results be shared with the greater scientific and cancer community?
1: So part of why we are actually leveraging new technologies in the way in which we collect data um, is, is specifically so that we can look at things in more real time. Uh, you know, when you're only administering a survey every three years, it's, you're naturally a little bit delayed. So we're looking at a lot of new ways to increase more regular engagement with our study participants. Right now, what we do is once we've collected a round of data, we're able to start using those data almost immediately. Um, in different ways. And for us as researchers, most of that culminates in scientific publications. But a lot of it for us, which is part of the great thing about being at the American Cancer Society, is that we have this great mechanism by which we can deliver and translate information almost immediately. So we're out in communities nationwide. We work with health systems across the country. We have some vehicles that make it much easier for us to share the research findings that come out of studies like this and help inform um, what we do and how we do it. All right. Well, let's drill
0: down into that a little bit and think about uh, something that's relevant to all of us. So We know that being physically active certainly reduces cancer risk, but we have a ton to learn about what kind of activities and who should do it and when we should do it and how long we should do it. Is there there an example within the data that you've mined from CPS3 that might shed light on those questions? And then how are you able to share that with our community?
1: Well, now you're hitting the topic that I love to talk about more than any other, which is physical activity. Uh, It's, you know, it's amazing. When I started my career uh, back in in the 90s, there was one line in the first ever Surgeon General's report about physical activity and health as it relates to cancer. And it said that higher levels of physical activity may lower risk of colon cancer. Fast forward 20 years in my career and today we know conclusively based on the science that's come out of studies like CPS2 that physical activity is actually um, related to lower risk of seven different types of cancer and possibly at least a half dozen others. We've also learned a lot about how prolonged time spent sitting, which we do so much today compared to a decade or even two decades ago, and how it may be related to higher risk of different types of cancer. So in CPS3, we're already collecting a tremendous amount of information, um, not just through our surveys, but we've also launched the largest collection of device-based physical activity data in a population study um, within the study population. So we're trying to get about 20,000 of our CPS3 participants to wear a research-grade device for a short period of time so that we can really understand how much activity do you need? Does it have to happen? spread out throughout the week? Or can you be what we call a weekend warrior and do all of your activity just on the weekends? Um, What does that really mean in terms of uh, your cancer risk and what's the optimal way in which you should be active in your life?
0: That's an enormous amount of people. And what will come from that is an enormous amount of really valuable information to answer the questions I was just posing about what kind of physical activity, who should do it, when, that's uh, really exciting. All right. And you you indicated that CPS3 has allowed the American Cancer Society to move beyond surveys and into the modern age where we are now relying on device-based information. So I want to dive into something that is particularly relevant right now, and that is that CPS-3 participants have been invited in another kind of device-based mechanism of participation to help investigators actually track the COVID-19 epidemic, and this is using an app called the COVID Symptom Tracker. I know this app was developed by doctors and scientists at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, at Massachusetts General Hospital and King's College of London and Stanford School of Medicine, who all worked in partnership with this health science company called Zoe. So I'm really interested for you to share with us your thoughts on this. Maybe we'll just start with how does the COVID symptom tracker app work?
1: This tracking app has been a fantastic thing to offer our participants for a number of reasons. So, anyone can actually participate. You don't have to be affiliated with CPS3 or any other study. In fact, there's, I think, now over three and a half million people across the country that are participating. But basically, you go to your app store, um, whether you're an Android or Apple device, and you just download the app, and you will agree to have. very basic data collected by the app. So simple questions like, have you had a COVID test? Are you feeling any symptoms? If you say yes, uh, they'll dive into some more questions about what type of symptoms you've had. It really is helping us in real time understand where there may be some hotspots related to COVID popping up because we're using this crowdsourcing way of collecting symptom-based data on people across the country. So we can see if here in Atlanta, where I live, for instance, are we seeing that more people are reporting symptoms today than were yesterday? And are we starting to see an uptick? So it's helping with short-term data collection around the burden of COVID across the country in real time, Um, But there's going to be so much long-term potential with the data that are being collected as well. That's just fascinating. And I love that it
0: kind of lists up the opportunity that while we are all very much separated, there are things that we can do together that benefit not only us, but the people we love and our communities and quite frankly, our world. I mean, that's an incredible number that over three and a half million individuals have already signed up, already downloaded the app, and that it's open to anyone. So let's, I'd love to move through this in two stages. First, you indicated that there are going to be obvious short-term benefits to this crowdsourcing of information as we deal with COVID-19 and understand those hotspots. So I guess I want to first ask, what are you and the other investigators really hoping to learn long-term, kind of in general, and then we'll move into the cancer space, which is obviously where I'm really excited, <laughs> but maybe just more in general, what what are people thinking about could be some of the big long-term questions that we will be able to um, ask and answer because of the data that comes from the app?
1: We hear so many things right now in the news almost on a daily basis about Uh, who is vulnerable or more vulnerable than someone else to COVID infection and what may put you at higher risk for having a severe response to having been infected. So the types of data that we're collecting through this app will really allow us to understand at a more specific level with really big numbers um, what those experiences look like. And that the bigger the numbers that you have, the more stable the conclusions that you can draw. So, you know, in terms of just overall health, we're understanding and are able to already begin understanding more about not just who's being infected, but what are the symptoms that are more common? Are there new symptoms beyond the ones that we're already hearing about Um, as as potentially related to having been infected. And then are individuals who say, for instance, have a history of diabetes, are they more likely to have specific type of symptoms and present in one way versus another? So it's just helping us understand the landscape of what this infection means because it's new to all of us.
0: It certainly is. And
1: I, I love what you said about confidence
0: and i think that's one thing that epidemiologists rely on so much i mean the the more data the more numbers that you have when you're thinking about epidemiological studies the more confident you can be that the conclusions you draw are accurate so one of the things that we'll certainly do in the introduction to the podcast and when we share with our listeners is just to tell them how to join and how to participate and how to be one of those individuals that's crowdsourcing this incredible opportunity for us to understand the pandemic, um, understand risk factors and um, really help our community. So you and I are especially interested in one community in particular. So I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on how the information that comes from the COVID symptom tracker in combination of data from CPS3 will be used to help cancer patients and survivors.
1: I'm so excited to be able to integrate the data that we're collecting in real time from the app with all of the other very rich data we have from CPS3 for a number of reasons. I think there's so many questions as both someone who uh, has many family members affected by cancer, but also as someone who is concerned about my own cancer risk, um, as well as as a researcher. We want to understand what actually does this infection mean? We know that many other types of infection, like HPV or Helicobacter pylori um, and many other types of infections um, from viruses are important for cancer risk um, across the world. And we don't know yet what the impact of this virus and having been infected with it is going to mean in terms of cancer risk. So by combining data from the COVID tracker with our ongoing follow-up of our CPS3 population, will be able to directly inform two years, five years, 10 years from now, what did being infected with COVID mean for your cancer risk? How is that changing? Let's think about today. We know that certain things, of course, like smoking, um, are directly associated with higher risk of lung cancer. Does having also have had COVID infection Further worsen that that risk, or does it not have an influence? We don't know. It's something that we're going to need to learn. There's so much that's happening in the body with um, that COVID infection that understanding what it means in combination with all of the other data that we collect through CPS3 on an ongoing basis, we'll be able to answer some really important questions about the impact on risk as well as for cancer patients. What does this infection mean in terms of survivorship, quality of life, as well as longer term survival after a cancer diagnosis?
0: Yeah, I was just sitting here thinking about our cancer community and how challenging the pandemic has been for individuals who are undergoing cancer treatment or have recently completed and are cancer survivors. And you're exactly right. Uh, We will, or I guess the expectations are, we will be dealing with COVID for a long, long time. So the unfortunate reality is that cancer patients and survivors will be dealing with that cancer diagnosis and COVID. For the foreseeable future. So it's really exciting to think that this data will help us better inform not only those individuals but also the individuals that take care of them, their caretakers, and um, their oncologists who are um, working with them in their treatment regimens. So I guess we will just stay tuned. Do you have an expectation for when we would begin to have data that you can begin to interpret and study, and then we can begin to share.
1: We're already working on some of those more immediate questions coming out of the data that we're collecting through the app, and we're doing that in partnership with our colleagues at Harvard, Stanford, and a number of other institutions across the country. So those will be, I think, disseminated very, very soon um, in in the upcoming months. And uh, and then we'll continue to link these data with CPS-3 and other studies that are participating in the app to understand the longer-term landscape as it relates to cancer as well. I love hearing the excitement
0: in your voice about what you do. Um, I think our listeners would love to hear maybe a what's next. So is there something that when you think about just in some total of the opportunities and the investment that will come from CPS3. are Is there one thing or a few things that you'd really love to share?
1: So I have probably two quick answers to that. Um, the The thing that of course gets me excited is that we've built and are continuing to grow a resource that has such broad potential to positively impact what we know about cancer and how to help cancer patients live long and healthy lives after a diagnosis. So it excites me to think about all of the different possibilities that we, that we have because of the fact that the American Cancer Society has now, for a third generation, invested in this type of population study. But what also gets me really excited, and it was validated with this COVID symptom tracking app, is how technology can really help change the landscape of how we do our research. As I mentioned earlier, we started launching CPS3 back in 2006. And if you can believe it, that was two years before the introduction of the first generation iPhone to the public. So as you can imagine, the fact that we had just an online survey seemed really technologically savvy. And to think in just 14 years what we've been able to do with technology and how that will accelerate what we can learn is really exciting to me as well.
0: Absolutely. It's hard to think about
1: (laughs) 2006, and you're right. um, It
0: is such an incredible journey that we've all been on for the past 14 and a half years, and It's not lost on me how flexible the American Cancer Society has been with TPS3 and how innovative. And it's really interesting to think where we'll be in another five years, our 10 years, with our ability to use this data to inform our decision making. So what a wonderful time. I... I just have one last question for you, Alpha, and that is that many of our cancer, many of our listeners, rather, are cancer patients, or they are survivors and caregivers. Is there a message you would like to share with this listener group in particular?
1: I hope that learning even just a little bit more about CPS3 um, helps provide even more hope to our cancer patients, survivors, and caregivers. Uh, they Each and every one of you continue to be my inspiration for why I come into work every day, and we've made such tremendous progress because of individuals like our CPS3 participants who have committed their time and information, honestly, in honor of cancer patient survivors and caregivers, to help us make the progress that we've already made and It's really what inspires us for the future in terms of the progress we have left to make.
0: Well, thank you so much, Albo, for sharing a really wonderful message. I think we can all use a message of hope, and it's certainly inspirational to hear about not only where we are today with CPS3, but also uh, really the unlimited possibilities of where we'll go. So I'll let you get back to it. I thank you so much for sharing your time with us today.